0: Welcome to the Focus Church Teachings Podcast. We hope this brings a lot of encouragement to you, but we also want you to know that we believe discipleship doesn't occur here, but occurs in small groups where people share their gifts with each other in many to many discipleship. If you want to know more about that, stick around after the teaching. We've been talking um, about our core values, the foundations of focus. And just to remind you, we've been talking about the fact that. That the foundations of focus, for us, they are, and they really should be. Core values should be this way for all organizations, but because they're often not, I really want to clarify this. For us, here at Focus, our core values are foundational. There are three things. They're foundational, which means that we literally built the, the structure and the system and the processes of Focus Church, we built them from these core values. We didn't build something and then try to add core values into it. Um, we didn't do things that just because they've always been done that way and then try to figure out how to make the core values fit literally the the core values we've been sharing and will continue to share for the next few weeks are the things that decided what focus looks like. Um, because of that, that means our core values are also expository. That means they explain why we do what we do. So at any point, if you're wondering why do they focus on this? Why do they emphasize that? Why do they do this? Why do they do that? It should be able to be explained by our core values. Um, and, uh, and, and for us, it, 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 uh, there is a close connection. I've been in a lot of organizations where that isn't always the case, but again, for us they really are. And then thirdly, our core values are driving. They are the things that drive us forward. So they will continue to make the decisions for us as far as if anything changes or doesn't change, those will be the things that will drive us forward. If our current structure no longer suits the core values someday because things change around us, we will change our current structure. Um, but it seems to be right now that they are foundational they are expository and they do drive us forward and so we've been going through what those core values are and we've talked about three of them so far and they can they can all be started by saying at focus we seek and then we have a, a little line that explains that core value. So just as a way of, of, of remembrance does anybody remember um, and here in the room because I got the volume turned down on the meeting owl until till the end but does anybody remember what, what the first core value number one was. We seek to make life easier by a kind word, deed, with, with our portion of grace. That's good. You're a little bit ahead. That's the second core value, but oh, we'll get to, to that. Ask the most important Scary questions. questions. Very good. Yeah. we At Focus, we seek to make church the best place to ask the most important questions. And if it doesn't show up on screen, we're just going to press right on because it appears not to be. Um, and that's correct. And the second one uh, you already mentioned is we seek to make everyone's journey a little easier today by a kind word a simple service, a stewardship of God's grace. And we talked about that stewardship of God's grace. And it's particularly on the third core value, we talked about it, where we said at Focus, we seek in our groups to facilitate many-to-many discipleship rather than merely discussion. And that many-to-many discipleship, we believe the whole reason it works, that it makes a difference, is because we've all been given a stewardship of God's grace. We've all been given a, a piece, a slice of the very power and love of God to bless other people with. And because of that, we believe it's grace that actually disciples people. And so as each part of the body, as Paul talks about in Ephesians, as everyone does their work, discipleship isn't just something that one person does for a bunch or one person does for one. Those things do happen. But the most common and effective manner of discipleship is when everybody is involved in discipling everybody. It's many many and so we 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 then create these groups these little communities that we call focus groups with the goal being that many to many discipleship will happen in those groups and what we work on as leaders are are the uh, your focus group leaders meet with me twice a month um and then many times we'll meet we'll meet beyond that and chat a lot We're we're in a lot of contact but we have a regular twice a month meeting which is uh for training and connection and at that time my goal with them is to continue to help them become and they help each other because we even do many to many discipleship in there but is for us to become better facilitators not just of discussion but of discipleship how do we help people how do we equip people as ephesians says how do we be those equippers who equip people for works of service how do we help people to do things that will really serve each other with the grace that we've been given understanding that discipleship happens when we do that so that's our first three core values. And I hope that you can begin to see how they are foundational and expository and driving. How these are, are the things that go into why we do things the way we do them. Our fourth core value, I wanna come at a, a little bit sideways. Uh, I wanna bring up an idea, which is the idea of accountability. Accountability, I don't know how you feel about accountability. There's lots of strong feelings about accountability. Um, Some people love the word. It's a a buzzword in business and in churches and 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 uh, in government. Right. We want accountable governments. Of course we do. We want people to be accountable for their actions Um, in churches. The word accountability, it it has a lot of mixed messages. And I know that for me, for many years, the word accountability in church was something that I thought was good that we needed to have. That was really important. But I was kind of dreaded it. It was not something I really looked forward to. I knew that I needed accountability because I'm, I do things bad sometimes, but it was never something that was encouraging to me. And, and, and as men, I don't know, but I guess women do this too, but it also seems to be something men do a lot. Um, we have accountability groups where we get together with other men and usually it came down to talking about all the ways we failed in that week and, um, and somehow that would help us to not fail in the next week. And that just didn't often happen that way for me, to be honest. Um, that it didn't help me get better the next week. It made me feel worse about each succeeding week. (laughs) But what is accountability? That's the question. Because we do believe in a certain kind of accountability, an obligation to hold each other accountable for something. But I think the bottom line is for what? I think think if you just kind of were to kind of come up with a baseline definition of accountability, at least as it's seen in the church, I think what we see it in in sort of a neutral or positive sense, accountability is I think often seen as a kind of positive peer pressure, which we put on each other to help people make some sort of change, which can then become a consistent permanent change for them. That's, that's the goal of a lot of accountability, right? That, that there's going to be this positive peer pressure, which will keep me doing what I'm supposed to be doing until eventually that becomes a new, a new way for me, a new way of something, a new way of living, Because of the accountability that I've received. As far as it goes, I don't think that's necessarily a bad idea. But again, it gets back to the question. What is it we're trying to change? What is it that we're trying to exert that positive peer pressure to make happen? What is it that we're trying to hold people accountable to? And so I just want to kind of talk through a little bit some of the ideas that, that, that we often may feel or have in churches. And that's that accountability, maybe, maybe what we're trying to change is behavior. Right? So accountability is getting everybody to behave according to a shared standard. So you have a group of people, these are the good behaviors, these are the bad behaviors. Now we're going to help each other behave according to a shared standard. That's possible. That's the way a lot of people see accountability. That's certainly not always negative, right? We do sometimes even as communities and cultures, we we need to have certain behaviors that we see are shared. There's a lot of accountability in our general culture, in American culture right now. There's a lot of accountability for you know, the Me Too movement was an accountability for, for behaving, men behaving better than they often behave, right, when it comes to sexual mores. Uh, racism. There's there's a certain amount of accountability for racism in our culture. There, there are these places where we see accountability in, in the country worldwide when it comes to that. You behave according to a shared standard. Um, and how, how do you enforce that? How does that positive or negative peer pressure look? So here's the difficulty in the church, though if if our goal is simply behavior, then it comes down to determining which behaviors are the right ones and which ones are the wrong ones. And in a smaller community, like a church, and, and even in a larger community, we can see a lot of times it comes down to everybody behaving the same way. And then we get into the arguments, even if you look at the larger culture, there's the question of at what point do we really, really shun somebody, right? or Or cancel or 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 chastise them, or even lock them away, at what point does their behavior deviate enough that we do that, and if we're not careful, the, it just becomes everybody has to behave the same, but we lose sight of what it is we're trying to really affect. And in a church that happens too, that, that if the goal's behaving the same, then the pressure simply becomes on behavior. And there's a couple of problems with that. If all we do in the church is try to push each other towards behaving the same, that doesn't actually line up with the Great Commission that we've talked about the last few weeks. There is a, there is a line, right, where Jesus says, teach them to obey everything I've commanded you. So there is that obedience issue. It's not that behaviors are relevant. But you can see that in a lot of churches, what it comes down to is we're all supposed to behave in the same ways, and it becomes very hazy and gray about whether what we're really calling people to do is what Jesus called them to do. And if it's not, then at what point are we, are we overstepping our bounds? But there's something deeper than that. Somehow behavior isn't it. Let me, let me tell you a little story. I'm going to tell you this story in three parts. I'll tell you the first part now that, that shows, I think, some of the problems with accountability. I grew up in, a, a, when I went to college, I became part of a, a church, great church, great commission, association churches, changed my life. I would not be a pastor today. Focus would not exist without that group. Um, and I became a part of this group, and they really wanted to to see everyone apply the scripture in really practical ways, and that, that changed my life, no question about it. Great things I learned there. But there was this emphasis on accountability, and I remember one particular year that we were all focused on having quiet times. Now, that may or may not be a familiar phrase to you. Some of you have been in church a while, evangelical churches, you may have heard that phrase. Some of you who have not, you may not. It simply means this. Quiet time is time that you set aside to spend with God in prayer and scripture. It's a good thing. Again, nothing wrong with doing that. In fact, it's a positive thing I recommend everybody do. But that's what it is. It's this idea of spending some time. And, 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 and in, in our particular moment at this time, it got even very specific. Like you needed to do it in the morning before you did anything else. There might be good rationales for that, but that's, that's nothing ever commanded in Scripture. But, but, but there it was. You needed to do it in the morning before you did anything else. You needed to pray. You needed to read Scripture. And you needed to find an application in the Scripture to take through your day. And if you didn't, you failed at the quiet time thing. And so for accountability, I remember that for a while we were all doing it. I was doing it and all my friends were doing it. And I would walk around and you'd meet up with a friend. And and the first thing out of their mouth would be, did you have your quiet time today? And more often than not, my answer was no, but I'll be super honest with you. I wasn't super honest with them because I didn't like saying no all the time (laughs) because it didn't change anything. It didn't mean that I could go back and fix it. And it didn't actually mean that I would do better the next day. Because I found even in the morning when I woke up and I thought about the fact that people were gonna ask me questions, it wasn't always enough to get me out of bed to have my quiet time knowing that someone would ask. Particularly when I figured out that honestly, I could just tell a little white lie and say, yeah. And they would say, what'd you get out of it? And say, oh, and it was kind of dry, not much. And what are they gonna say? Well, I don't know. (laughs) They can't really blame me, right? I mean, they could say work harder and I could say, okay, I will. You know, but, but I begin to dread not only that question but I began to dread my friends. I began to not want to see my friends on campus, my Christian ones, because I knew that they were gonna ask me if I'd had my quiet time. So the upshot of this kind of accountability, trying to change my behavior, which was a good behavior to change, but the upshot of this accountability was that it, it, it led me to recognize that I could be dishonest and foil the whole accountability structure to begin with. It led me to not seek out the very encouragement and accountability that I needed for quiet times. And most of all, it led me to forget why I was supposed to be having a quiet time in the first place. There was a deeper reason for it, right? There was, there was presumably I wanted to grow and I wanted to know God and I wanted to pursue him. And I forgot all about that. It all became about, and even when I did have a quiet time, it became about what, not, not what am I learning from this, but what can I grab that I can share with somebody when they ask me what I'm learning from this, which is not the same question. And so I would look for nuggets, so it would sound like I had a really good quiet time. (laughs) And my goal shifted. So my behavior changed, but my goal was not even what the goal had been. And I began to realize this was not effective. And this is part of the problem. When we are just focused on changing people's behavior, it can lead to self-righteousness, right? It can lead to a dishonesty. It can lead to this idea of just how how do we fake that behavior? How do we make ourselves look better? Because we begin to see that the standard of spirituality is behavior which is a very superficial standard. Not completely irrelevant, but it doesn't go very deep, does it? I can fake behaviors, maybe I can even change behaviors, but am I really moving closer to God in the process? Well, I don't know and I don't care because that's not what the accountability is about if you're just trying to change my behavior. So it seems like maybe what we need is an accountability for something deeper. Simply trying to change behavior is perhaps not enough. Maybe what we need is to get beyond behavior to what people are thinking. So this is another level of accountability that sometimes churches go for is can we all think the same way? And and that depending how you put it that can sound really negative or really positive. But let's I put it in a fairly negative way. Thinking the same way as everyone else in the group doesn't sound great to anybody. But but you can hear how this could be phrased in more positive ways. We all have the same values. We all have the same we're focused on the same things. We're thinking about the same goals. Our minds are dwelling on the same principles and issues. And and, and and it is deeper. It is a different level in behavior. Like instead of just trying to get me to have a quiet time, what if somehow my friends were trying to get me to really think about why I should be having a quiet time, to begin to think about why it's beneficial to have a quiet time, to be able to, to begin to think about the verses that I'm supposed to be thinking about. There's a, there's a positive thing in getting to this next level. The difficult here though is how on earth do you hold people accountable for what they're thinking? This is certainly not easier to uh, discern than behavior. In fact, it's harder, isn't it? Behavior you can fake, but you can't, you, at least it's there. You see it or you don't. But thinking, you can just outright lie. <laughs> it can never, ever change your thoughts at all. And tell people, so how on earth do we hold people accountable for what they're thinking? And secondly, what exactly is it? that we're all supposed to think. And this is interesting, because you say, well, scripture. Okay, which scripture? All of it. Mm, That's a lot. Um, Shall I think a lot about, I had a friend in college, the same, same college, same group, he had a an interesting sense of humor. I think it was his way of rebelling against some of this accountability structure. Whenever, you know, we did something, which again was very nice and I still recommend, but when you gave a card to somebody or, you know, they were sick and you got them a get well card or you just gave a card of encouragement, lots of times people would just write verse references without writing what the verse was. And it was a little bit of a way to get people to look up scriptures. Even there, it was a little bit annoying because it wasn't just a, I love you, I'm giving you a scripture. It was, I love you, I'm giving you a scripture and are you going to be honest enough to look it up? Well, I had a friend who knew people didn't look them up. So he began to write Leviticus. I should have looked up the detail of it, but there's a verse in Leviticus. He would always write that reference. And he would wait to see if anybody ever got back to him because the reference was, may curses and boils come upon you all the days of your life. And so he used to write that on cards and people would be like, thanks so much for the card. And he'd be like, yeah, what would you think about the verse? And then it's like, oh, it was great. One of my favorites, my life verse. And he'd be like, "Uh uh-huh, really? Okay. Okay. Um, but, But is that the verse I should be thinking about? May curses, curses and boils come upon you all the days of your life. May you be cursed with boils from this day forward. I mean, what do, you, what do we mean? And, and then here's the other issue. What does it mean when you encounter a situation in your life which is not clearly laid out in Scripture? That Scripture doesn't tell you exactly what to think. Because let's be honest, that happens a lot. Well, now what does that accountability do for me? What do I, what am I supposed to think? I'm working at a job. This job is really hard. My boss wants me to do things that I personally don't think are right, but I don't see anything in scripture about it, but I'm having a hard time with it. Should I do it? Should I not? What should I think about that? Well, how do we decide? And if we decide because one person who seems to have a lot of wisdom tells us, then how quickly do we go from all thinking the same things about the Lord to all simply thinking the same things that the person we admire who has the most charisma and the most persuasion tells us? What prevents us from simply becoming you know, copies and, and tape recordings, uh, duplicates of the person that speaks the loudest? You know, There's a lot of things that Jesus just didn't comment on. That's the bottom line. There's a lot of things he did not comment on that we run into today. And some of the things he did comment on, they're not super clear. How do we we understand it? Let's say that we're having a discussion about taxes. Let's say that in our discussion about taxes, we say, well, what what are we supposed to do? And someone goes to the story where Jesus pulls this, someone asks him about taxes, and he pulls a coin out of a fish's mouth, and he says, whose image is on the coin? And they say, Caesar's. And he says, then give to Caesar what's Caesar's, and give to God what's God's. And then we say, go think that about taxes. Well, I don't know what that means. I mean, we would have to have a lot of discussion. And at the end of it, what if you think that means something different than I do? Do I hold you accountable, or do you hold me accountable? What, What do we do? What is the same thing we're supposed to think? It gets worse than that. What about other political issues that are so completely different from the political world that Jesus lived in because they didn't have the choices we have? And unfortunately, in a lot of churches, what what the accountability to think the same has become has been follow the same political and philosophical ideologies that the leaders of that church follow. And it's very hard to find scriptures that really tell you whether we should have governmental welfare or not. Now, some people say it's not hard at all, I can show them to you. That's great, and I'll show you the ones that argue with you, and let's have a discussion. But it isn't as simple as you think. So maybe it's not about what we think. Maybe it's still a level deeper. Maybe maybe just holding people accountable for what they do and just holding people accountable for what they think, maybe, there's, maybe there is a deeper level. Because we aren't just wanting to all think the same thoughts. We want people to value the same things. We want people essentially to agree on some ethical standard. Maybe that's what accountability is for. And that makes a certain sort of sense. We all want we want people to love and we want people to treat each other the same and then when you look at things like racism and the me too movement, there's an ethical standard there we're looking for. And it does lead to behavior, right? But it's flowing from this ethics. So maybe that's what accountability is about. That we're trying to come to the same ethical standards. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this. This sounds good. The problem is it just doesn't line up with what Jesus asked from us. The Great Commission does not say all adhere to, a, to the same ethical standard. I mean, maybe you can, you can get there, but that doesn't seem to be the deepest level. That doesn't seem to be what it says. And here again, the problem is ethics are complicated. And if you were here during our Foundations of Christianity series, one of the things we talked about is that as human beings, to this day, we are terrible at knowing what's right and what's wrong. We think we're good, but we're very bad. And once again, if you go to Scripture and say, Scripture will tell us exactly, the problem is it just doesn't, always. See, it would be convenient if God had written us a manual for life which covered every situation. And God is supernatural. He could have done it. He could have given us a magical book, which when you're encountering something that's difficult, you open it up and it tells you exactly what you should do. He absolutely could have done that. If his goal was for us to all maintain a certain ethical standard, he would have absolutely done that. Why not? Then you can go to that book and say, today I faced this situation with this person at this moment and I don't know what to do. And it would say, go do this. Some people try to read the Bible that way, unfortunately, often. Like God can do that. By the way, I'm not saying it never happens. that like God can't speak to you directly. But it's, it's dangerous to assume it always works that way. I, I remember hearing a story... It's 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 a joke. Don't get too too bent out of shape here about this story. I, I remember hearing a, a, a story about a, a guy who was actually wrestling with was his life worth living anymore, and so uh, he was contemplating contemplating what he should do he's like what should i do how can i how can i fix things my family hates me and i'm bad to people and i just don't know what to do and he said i'm just going to open scripture i'm going to find a verse and that's going to god's going to speak to me and so he opened a verse and the verse he opened to said judas went and hung himself and he thought oh my gosh is that what you're saying that's what i should go do and so he he said let me let me try again so he flipped to another verse and he pointed at and it said you go and do likewise Okay, it's a joke. Nobody killed themselves as a result of this. It's a bad joke. But my point is, it's a certain sort of approach to scripture, which is just not what God ever promised us. He didn't promise us that the Bible is a magic book, which tells us the ethical situation at each moment. And I'll be honest, I don't even think Christianity is intended to be an ethical standard at its base level. Now, love your neighbors yourself is certainly an ethical statement. And certainly that's an ethic we should apply. But You can tell by the arguments that Jesus had with people about that very ethical statement that even to them it was not clear what that meant. And even to us it's not clear what it means. So it's just very difficult. And again, how do you hold people accountable for an ethical standard? You can try to do it by grilling them. You can try to do it by looking and seeing what they're thinking about. You can try to do it by adjusting their behaviors. But these all fall short. And these all lead us to a place ultimately which is not the goal of the great commission because what we are not trying to be what jesus did not define discipleship as he never said to us what i need you to do is go on the into all the world and create communities where everybody behaves in the same way i need you to go out into the world and create communities where everybody thinks the same way i need you to go out in the world and create communities where everybody has the exact same ethical philosophy these are none of the things that jesus said do all these things happen perhaps Do we find that there are certain behaviors churches do and don't do that people of God do and don't do? Yes. Do we find that there are certain thoughts that people of God do and don't, you know, nurture? Yes. Do we find that there are certain ethical approaches that people of God do and don't share? Yes. But these are all the reflections and symptoms of what we're really looking for. And if we focus on the symptoms, we miss the deeper level. So what is accountability in a church? Uh, Is there nothing left? If we're not supposed to get each other all to behave the same and think the same and have the same ethical standard, then what's left? What is the point of the church and accountability in the church? And I want to show you a verse in Galatians 5. Are we, is it moving? It is. Look at that. Wow. Okay. I want you to listen. We're gonna, we're gonna, this is another one of those moments where we're actually going to start a little bit later and then back up to the verse right before because I want you to see something in this order. I want you to see that this verse we're about to read here in Galatians 5 This is Paul calling for accountability, and it sounds pretty similar to some things we've talked about, right? He says this, you were running a good race. Who cut in on you to keep you from obeying the truth? That kind of persuasion does not come from the one who calls you. A little yeast works through the whole batch of dough. I am confident in the Lord that you will take no other view. In some ways, this is funny because this sounds like everything we just talked about. Accountability maybe isn't, right? because he starts by saying you were running a good race. Your behavior was good. You were doing the right things. Who cut in on you to keep you from obeying the truth? Somebody disrupted you, and Paul is holding them accountable to that. He's saying somebody pulled you back from the kinds of behaviors that you were supposed to have. And he says that kind of persuasion doesn't come from the one who calls you. They called you away, so I'm holding you accountable to the fact you're following the wrong people. Then he makes a statement. A little yeast works through the whole batch of dough. This is kind of an accountability statement, right? It's like if you hang out with the wrong people, if you do the wrong things, if you think the wrong thoughts, then it'll affect your whole life. Here it turns out he's talking specifically about the people. Whoever cut in on you to keep you from obeying the truth, they have this kind of persuasion, but it's not from God. But then he says this, I am confident in the Lord you will take no other view. You will think as I think. All right. So, so in one sense, Paul is, is specifically trying to protect them from a false teaching and a behavior which comes from it. So you could argue that's thinking and behavior and possibly even ethics. In this case, we're going to see in a second, the specific false teaching that he's trying to protect them from is this idea that circumcision is required before you can become a Christian. So there were the Jews, most of them were already circumcised because God had asked them to be as Jews. The Gentiles were becoming Christians now, and the question was did they have to become circumcised so that before, essentially, did they have to become a Jew before they could become a Christian? But it had this very specific context of circumcision, which was a huge identifier for the Jews. And so he's saying, he's specifically saying, this teaching, this persuasion that tells you that you have to get circumcised before you can become a Christian, that's not from God, it's a bad teaching. And it's going to disrupt your race. It's going to get you distracted. So he is trying to protect them from a wrong way of thinking. And he is trying to protect them from the behavior which comes from it, getting circumcised. He basically says, just don't don't go get circumcised. To the Galatians, he says, don't do it. But there's a couple things that tell us that there's more, a deeper level even than anything we've discussed so far. That it's beyond ethics and beyond thought. And beyond behavior, and one of the things that tells us this is, I'll just tell you this little piece of information that's not in this passage. There are other people in the church that Paul specifically says do get circumcised. In fact, there is a moment in the church where Paul takes with him a Greek to to share the gospel with a bunch of uh, Jews, and he says to this Greek assistant of his, "We should get you circumcised before we go talk to them." Well, here, he's so strong saying this would be the wrong behavior, which goes to show that he's not concerned about the behavior. Even though that's the accountability that seems to be coming to bear, where his point is don't get circumcised, in another context, he says, do get circumcised. So there's something about the accountability that's deeper, which allows Paul to discern at one moment, you should get circumcised, and another moment, you shouldn't. In other words, it's the very kind of helpful accountability for those gray areas that we just talked about that scripture doesn't give you. Somehow, Paul is able to look at this community and know what would be best at that moment. And it's not that they all behave the same. Another way to think about it is that those who are saying you must get circumcised are actually opposing their own accountability of behavior by saying we should all behave the same. If the Jews got circumcised. You should get circumcised. So there's something here that he's trying to get back to and it turns out that paul isn't really trying to get them behave a certain way but in fact he's disagreeing with the idea that what they do matters at all and if you don't think that's true that's why we're going to bring in the verse before this because we read all this without knowing what his real call to accountability was sounds like it's don't get circumcised but what he really says is this in christ jesus neither circumcision nor circumcision has any value. Neither circumcision nor uncircumcision has any value. The behavior doesn't matter. Now, this is a weird sort of accountability, isn't it? (laughs) He's not saying, he's not actually saying, he does say to many of the Galatians, don't get circumcised, but you'll notice what he's really saying here is, it really doesn't matter. I don't care what you do. Now, how's that for accountability? I don't care what you do. Do or don't. And then he says this, the only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. Now, let's be clear, because you could think that that expressing yourself through love is an ethical standard. To some degree it is, but that's not where he lands. He doesn't say the only thing that counts is love one another, right? He says the only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. Expressing itself through love is, again, the result of something deeper. So the behavior of getting circumcised or not circumcised, says Paul, only matters as it reflects your love. And your love only matters as it expresses your faith. So faith is the issue. And then the question is twofold. What is faith and how do we hold each other accountable for faith? That sounds as difficult as everything else we've talked about. But it's important to kind of understand it. And it lines up well with Hebrews 3, 12 through 13. The author of Hebrews, well, let me read this and then I'll tell you this. This is what he says. See to it, brothers and sisters, says the author of Hebrews, writing to a community of believers that that he's trying to help them understand the depth of the gospel. And he says this. See to it, brothers and sisters, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. But encourage one another daily as long as it is called today, so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. What's interesting about this verse is we get stuck on the word sin because in our minds, sin is almost always a behavior. But does this passage say really anything about behavior? It really doesn't. Does he say, See to it, brothers and sisters, that none of you sins? Does he say, Encourage one another today as long as it is called today, so that none of you will sin? No, the author of Hebrews is also unconcerned about the behaviors, isn't he? He's concerned about something deeper and the something deeper is this, something that sounds impossible at first grasp. He says, you have an obligation to see to it that none of you, another translation says, no one among you, which is the idea, shouldn't be a single individual among your community. See to it that no one among you has a sinful, unbelieving heart. And and I'll just say this as a point of clarification, and I would invite you to read the book of Hebrews from beginning to end, and you will find what I'm about to tell you is 100% clear and true. I'm not stretching this at all. The author of Hebrews very clearly throughout the entire rest of the book equates lack of faith with sin. To him, sin is not disobedience. To him, sin is not a, a behavior issue. Sin is a lack of faith issue. Sin is disbelief issue. So when he says sinful, unbelieving heart, to him, that's synonymous. A sinful heart is an unbelieving heart. But notice that his accountability, what he's saying we're responsible for, you can't get much deeper than the heart, can you? It's not what you do. It's not what you think. It's not an ethical system. It's that somehow we're responsible for one another's hearts. Now, if at the moment you're like, okay, now that just sounds like an impossible task, then I want to invite you on this journey because at least... You're taking it seriously. And I want you to see that for the author of Hebrews, when we think accountability is simply changing someone's behavior, thoughts, or ethical standard, we're not taking our obligation seriously enough. When Paul says, I don't care what you do, it's not because he doesn't take seriously our obligation to one another. When the author of Hebrews says, I don't care what you do, it's not because he doesn't take it seriously, it's because he takes it more seriously. And he sees that it's something very deep and very difficult. And so he says, see to it, brothers and sisters, that none of you, and again, the idea is not yourself, it's you're obligated to the rest, to no one among you, to your community. This is not an exhortation to the individual. This is not saying, see to it that you do not have a sinful unbelieving heart. It is see to it that no one among you has a sinful unbelieving heart. It turns away from living God. But encourage one another daily, as long as it's called today. When am I obligated to help encourage the, the faith of my brother and sister? Today. What about tomorrow? Well, wait till you get it to tomorrow, and what will it be? Today. Do I, should I have done it yesterday? I don't know. Yesterday's yesterday, but what is it now? It's today. It's just no escaping this kind of exhortation, is there? <laughs> you can try to postpone it, and it just isn't there. So that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. So, this is what's interesting, though. Our obligation to each other is not to think, act the same or even share a code of ethics. Our obligation, what discipleship is about, is following the Lord Jesus. When he says, teach them to obey all that I've commanded you, and I am with you always, he's saying, teach them who I am, and that I'm their Lord, and they should follow me, period. That's the only way you teach everything he commanded. And in fact, someone has made the very accurate point that if you go back through all the scriptures that say very clearly what has God commanded, it always comes down to, believe and trust Jesus, period. What we're called to is to trust God. Think about the idea, this phrase, hardened by sin's deceitfulness. The hardness that we're avoiding, the hardness that we're trying to help each other avoid is a hardness to Jesus. That's, that's the point. We're trying to help each other be, not become hard, but stay soft and malleable, not to me, but to Jesus. Not to each other, but to Jesus. Not to be controlled by each other or to listen to what I think you should do. And this is where the bottom line becomes different. When we are worried about controlling people's behaviors, then we have to make editorial decisions about what behaviors are most important and what aren't. And we already discussed, we're really bad at it. When we are trying to control people's thoughts, we're even worse at that. And when we're trying to control people's ethics, we're the worst of all. What we are supposed to do is to teach people not to follow us or me or you, but to Jesus himself. I have said, going back to churches now, one of my favorite things, one of my favorite commitments and things to say to my church community is, there is only room in this world for one Messiah. And you are not it, and I am not it. And I will commit to not trying to be it, and I want you to commit to not trying to be it. I don't want you to be malleable and open to me, because I will be wrong good percentage of the time. And I will be the most wrong when I think I'm the most right. (laughs) I want you to be open and malleable to Jesus because he can get it right and will always get it right. In short, faith in this context is about living a life with Jesus as our leader. Accountability for the church is helping each other stay focused on and committed to Jesus as our leader. We want people to follow Jesus, not ourselves. The hardness that we're avoiding in people's hearts is a hardness to Jesus' leadership. Somehow, we are to be committed to help each other stay soft to Jesus, to remember his goodness and his grace and his faith. And you know how I think we do that? By sharing with one another a slice of grace that we've been given. Because what better way to help people remember the grace of God than to have them experience it? And for some of you, that will be in speaking. And so sometimes you will speak correction, or you will speak teaching, or you will speak exhortation. For some of you, you could do it without ever speaking a word, and it will be the way you love, the way you serve, the way you help. All of these are discipleship. Teaching is not a higher level of discipleship than service. This is an American evangelical idea, not a biblical one. All service where we share our slice of grace is discipleship. Because all of it reminds people to say soft to God, to Jesus, so that he gets the glory and we say soft. Now, obviously, this impacts lots of things. This impacts the way we think, insofar that it means we should trust God's wisdom over our own. So if we're teaching people to learn to trust in God, that means occasionally we will challenge the way they think. But challenging the way they think is different from telling them what they should think. Do you see that? Challenge the way they think and encourage them to really consider what Jesus would think, what Jesus would have them do, what Jesus would have them how Jesus would consider this. Show them scriptures that give us indications of that and then understand it's not your job to make them think a certain way, it's your job to point them back to Jesus. Period. It does affect how we behave in that it should be expressed through our love of God and others, right? But it's that deeper level, which works at all times and places that we're missing. It would be one thing to say, Scripture says to love God and people, and so I'm going to do it in all the ways that Scripture says I'm supposed to do it. I really like the verse which says, faithful are the wounds of a friend, so I'm going to go stab all my friends. (laughs) Or it would be a much trickier thing to say, my friend is really dealing with this difficult situation. I'm not sure what loving them looks like in this situation, so I myself am going to have to be leaning on God in order to help figure out how to love them. And then as I do that, they're learning as they watch that that's how they should also be responding to things. So it does affect the way we behave. Of course, of course it does. If we're following our Lord Jesus, we will be living like him. If we're following our Lord Jesus, we will be thinking like him. But it's going to be a process. And it's much more important we push each other towards following Jesus than push them to believe that what I have learned about the way Jesus thinks and the way I should behave is exactly what you should learn. That is rarely effective. It can be helpful as like a suggestion, a push, a nudge, but it cannot be the accountability that we're obligated to give. You know, there are just way too many examples in Scripture of God calling people to do different weird things. And to assume that we should all do the same weird things is very problematic. I mean, really, it's terrible. And sometimes people will do that. They'll be like, well, well, Samson did this. Oh, my gosh. Please do not emulate Samson in anything. Well, I picked a, I picked a guy. I picked a bad... But Samson is held up in Hebrews as an example of faith. See, if you see him as an example of behavior, you have a problem. But if he's an example of faith, you could say, well, he definitely got some things wrong, but what is it he got right? What was the faith that we see in him that I should follow? Paul says, be imitators of me as I am imitators of God. And then in the same context, never says the words... That means I need you to leave your homes and families and plant churches with me all over Asia, Asia Minor, and the Mediterranean. In fact, he says, be imitators of me as I am imitators of Christ. And that means be good to your families, your wives, mind your business, be be faithful and honorable in your work, treat people well around you. In other words, do what you do, but do it by faith. It is a reminder... When we hold this kind of accountability with each other, it's also a reminder, instead of the, the quiet time accountability taking me away from remembering that what it's about is my relationship with the Lord, we should be reminding each other that we are engaged in the relationship with our Lord as our leader and our brother. And not simply a creed or an ethical following. And that means he can lead us through in every time, through every event. It doesn't matter what the culture is or the circumstances are around us. If we're holding each other accountable to being soft to the Lord, we can navigate all those gray areas. So it doesn't mean it doesn't matter, but it means the Lord knows when we don't. Hearing him, trusting him, resting in him, believing in his priorities at each moment, learning to walk with him in obedience and love, learning what it means to hear him. So go back to my story of accountability at the beginning. A friend of mine one day just saved me from this spiral, which I was no doubt going down. It was like, I I hate quiet times and I hate my friends. Now what? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I think a lot of people have. And one of my friends, very wise and smart, figured it out. He came up to me and he asked, how's your quiet time? Probably for the umpteenth time. And I, something in the way I answered must have just said to him, whoa, Nelly, <laughs> Dave's forgotten what this is about. I mean, I, I'm sure I said something like, ah. <laughs> and he said, wait, he said, I don't care. He said, what I really meant to ask is this. What has God been teaching you lately? Well, that's a whole different question, isn't it? Because first of all, notice the accountability is not on me to do a certain behavior. The only accountability on me in there is what? To think about what God has been teaching me recently. That's it. And I can even do it right at that moment, right? That's part of the problem, with the whole quiet time thing. It wasn't like they were ever going to say to me, did you have a quiet time? And I was going to be like, oh, hold on. I'll go do it right now. That is not the way that ever works. But when he said to me, what is God teaching you right now? Even if I hadn't thought about it all day, I could go, oh, that's a really good question. And it implies that God is teaching me and I should be looking for it. And it takes the pressure off me that I have to have done something for him to teach me something. And and it's so amazing because when I wasn't learning anything for my quiet times because I was just worried about proving that I'd had them, God wasn't teaching me anything. But when my friend started asking me and I said, I love that question, ask me that every day. And he did. What's God teaching you right now? I suddenly found that sometimes I'd have a quiet time and I'd share what I had learned from that. And sometimes I wouldn't, and I could still share something. In fact, I think when he said, what's God teaching you right now, I think my answer was, he's just taught me what accountability should look like. I mean, it was something like that. I was like, you, he just taught me something through you. That's an amazing question. I love that. He taught me. That's the question I'm asking all my friends from now on. It's just such a different push. It pushed me to Jesus. It pushed me to God. It didn't push me to a behavior, a thought, or a creed. So all of that is to say this is our, our next core value. We seek unity of faith rather than unanimity of thought and action. A lot of churches are looking for a unanimity of thought and action. We all behave the same and we all think the same. And that's how we know we are the same. I am... Incredibly pleased, satisfied, and even a little proud, I think, in a way I'm allowed to be, at the, the genuine diversity of thought in our church. And I don't mean by that the faith isn't important to me. I would like more unity of faith. I don't think we're there yet. I'd like more of that. But I am extremely proud of the fact that we have people who think very different thoughts who are all pursuing the same Lord. That's incredible. And here's what I really, truly believe in the bottom of my heart. I can cultivate a community around me which all thinks like I do. It's easy to do. You simply let people go who don't agree with you and say, that's fine, they didn't believe enough or weren't, weren't thinking right or we'll, we'll run them over in our bus. There's a <laughs> reference you can deal with. Um, that's an easy way to cultivate a community where everybody thinks the same plus let's be honest i've been teaching for 33 years i'm actually pretty good if i want to be at manipulating the way people think about things i don't want to do that isn't my goal and the reason it's not my goal is not because again some ways it's easier people also like to be taught what to think It's, it's easy it's easy a lot of people are hungry for that i can give them that they want to be told what to do they want to be told clearly this is wrong and this is right they don't like gray areas I can do all that. I can play that game. The problem is not that it's hard to do or unproductive. The fact is I think it might be profitable and easy for me. I I really think it might be. (laughs) The problem is I could be so wrong. (laughs) I could just be so wrong about so many things and I know it. I do not have the unshakable certainty of a cult leader. That is the only thing that stands between me and you being in a cult right now. (laughs) I just know that I could be wrong. And so I don't want you to do what I think. And I don't want you to think like I think because then you'll just follow my errors. I don't mind sharing what I think, and sometimes it would be helpful for you, and I do genuinely believe sometimes what I'm thinking is right. But I don't always know when it is and when it isn't. The fact that I feel like it is isn't always the determiner. But what I do believe with all my heart is that if you follow the Lord Jesus, he is engaged in your life, and he will lead, and he will get you there. Now, that means most of the time, deep down, and I think we're all this way, I believe that that means he'll get you to where I am because because deep down I do think I'm right. But do you see the safeguard there? I don't have to be right, because he'll get you where you need to go. And if it turns out to be somewhere else than where I am, then I'll learn. Then I'll say, oh, wow, look at that. That's crazy. I was actually wrong. It requires believing that Jesus is actually engaged in our lives. But I do. It's interesting that Jesus says one of his main things is to be the head of the church. And... I'm not, I, I, I'm only speak. I will literally, at this moment, I'm only referring to me as a pastor when I say, I have never pastored a church where it just looked to me like Jesus led the church the way he does this one. And if you want details on what I mean by that, I'm happy to give them, but I don't mean anything hokey. I just mean that there's so little control by the rest of our leaders to make you behave and think the way they do, that I see Jesus really working in people's lives in ways that he hasn't always been free to do. He can do whatever he wants, but I think you know what I'm saying. So here's some implications just very quickly that I want to mention about this. We seek unity of faith rather than unanimity of thought and action. It means we will have a diverse church. It means that there will be people who disagree with you. It means that one of the things you have to do as a member of Focus, if you're going to hang out here and and you're not going to go somewhere else because that happens in every church, um, is that you're going to have to be comfortable. You're going to have to, to learn to be okay with the difference in the room. It's a phrase I really like. Some of us are not, not okay with the difference in the room. It's hard. And it's okay if it's hard. And some days it will be hard. But you have to learn to be okay with it, even if it's hard. <laughs> because that will be the case. I have to learn to be okay with it. I was in our focus group the other day, heard somebody say something that I was like, ah, I wish you didn't think that way. <laughs> Literally, that's what I thought. I thought, oh, I wish you didn't think that way. But I didn't feel the need to, to jump in and say, that's a dumb way to think. Stop thinking that way. And here's why. I could have given them a really good argument because I've been through where they are. I could have given them a really good argument why they shouldn't think that way. But I didn't feel the obligation at that moment to do it. I was okay with the difference in the room. And I knew Jesus would take care of it. And we were focused on other things. It was just an aside. We do have an obligation to each other. Accountability is real. This thing that the author of Hebrews says is real. We have an obligation to one another's faith. Sounds overwhelming, but again, if you can put it in the right context, it's not really it comes down to, are you sharing the stewardship of grace God has given you? Are you trying? Maybe you don't know what the stewardship of grace God has giving you is. That's fine. Are you engaging at all? Are you trying? Because if you are, then I believe you're meeting that obligation. If you're not, if you're withholding that grace for one reason or another, bitterness, slander, anger, you don't like the person, it would be really interesting reasons, but they happen, or you don't think you have one, If any of that's true, I wanna encourage you, you have an obligation. And your obligation is to make the journey easier for everyone and to help them stay soft to Jesus. And God has given you a very special supernatural gift to help that happen. It's worth exploring. Uh, Number two, it's an obligation that nobody else will do. Nobody else will do it. Look, other people in the culture will seek to mold our thinking. It's their job. They're in education, their philosophy, their media. They will seek to mold our thinking. Fine. Let them do it or don't let them do it, depending on whether you think it's good or bad. Other people will seek to mold your behavior. Great. Let them do it or don't let them do it, depending on whether you think it's good or bad. Other people will seek to mold your ethical stance. Great. Let them do it or don't let them do it, depending on whether you think it's good or bad. But they're all doing that. <laughs> but who else is going to even consider their job is to help you grow in your softness toward God? Nobody. Nobody. And that's okay. I'm not saying they should, but I'm just saying recognize if the church does not meet this obligation to encourage one another in our faith, nobody else is gonna. And let's be honest, many parts of the world are going to actively work against your faith. That is not persecution complex. It's reality. They don't share your faith. They're going to work because they think it's dumb the way you're thinking, and they want you to think differently. They don't have the trust that there's a God who can make it work out, so they're going to control you or try. They're going to try to take your faith from you. There's a lot of our world's going to do it, More, increasingly more every day. And again, I don't say that for paranoia. I say that because we're increasingly less Christian as a majority influence. By the way, Christians are still, if you believe what people say about themselves, and I don't know how else you can measure these things, Christians are still the majority in the country. That's not what I mean. But I mean this Christian worldview, this this softness towards Jesus. It's just not things people are going to be doing if the church isn't doing it. If you're not doing it for your friend, who's going to do it? It is a serious obligation. But I think this approach to accountability helps us avoid the pitfalls of accountability. helps us avoid control. I'm not saying you have to control your friend. You just share your slice of grace with them and encourage their faith. Encourage them to look to Jesus. Can you make them look to Jesus? No, just encourage them. It helps us avoid control. It helps us avoid contempt. There's a lot of verses that actually talk about don't hold each other in contempt. Contempt is sort of a disdain. It's an idea that people are, are worth less than you because of their values and their thoughts. And I've noticed something. I read a book about six years ago, and it didn't convince me, but over the years I've become convinced. I read a book, not by a believer, by a sociologist who said America's biggest problem right now is contempt. People have too much contempt for each other. The ability to disagree and not hold people in contempt is disappearing in our country. That's a problem. That's one of the reasons I'm really excited that we have a community where we have disagreement without contempt. (laughs) So I think this approach to accountability helps us avoid that. And number three, it helps us avoid self-righteous pride or self-righteous guilt. And those are the same thing. They just depend on whether you're succeeding at what you think is the most important thing or not self-righteous pride says i am doing all the right things i am thinking the right things i am better than the other people i can take pity on them because they don't earn as smart as i am but that's what it is self-righteous guilt is just on the other end you have a bad day and you're like oh now i'm all worse than the other people they're not i'm not as good as they are both self-righteous pride and self-righteous guilt lead to bad accountability you will be a bad accountability partner if that's what you're driven by But you avoid that self-righteous pride and guilt if you're not focused on the behaviors, the thoughts, and the ethics, and instead focused on being soft to Jesus. Because it's hard to be self-righteous about being soft to Jesus, right? I love the idea, I love the word surrender. We sang that song and it stayed up on the slide forever. <laughs> I surrender all, I surrender all. What I love about the term surrender is it's, it's, it's not impossible because we're amazing at our ability to create, to, to create self-righteousness out of anything. It's not impossible. But it's really hard to boast about surrender. I gave up better than any of you. You know, it's, it, just doesn't quite, it just doesn't quite flow, right? You can boast about your, your obedience even, right? I'm so obedient to Jesus. But, but it's harder when you just remember it's surrender. <laughs> it's softness. I'm softer than you. I mean, you could. Again, we can make self-righteousness out of anything. So please don't do that. This is not your permission to do that. But, but I do think that seeing it this way helps. Um, I want to encourage you even that, that um, in, we have a group study that goes through our Focus Foundations. And on this particular um, one, what it actually does is goes through Romans 14. And I would encourage you in your groups to consider doing a study on Romans 14. Because it specifically talks about contempt, talks about self-righteousness, talks about judgment. And at the end of it, the last line of Romans 14 says, Anything not done in faith is sin. Anything not done in faith in this obedience to the Lord. If you're doing something that Jesus even would ask you to do, but you're not doing it because you're obeying him, you're off the mark. The point is obedience, not just action. All right. So that leads us to the, the, uh, the core values that we have so far. At Focus, we seek to make the church the best place to ask the most important questions. We seek to make everyone's journey a little easier today by a kind word, a simple service, a stewardship of God's grace. We seek in our groups to facilitate many-to-many discipleship rather than merely discussion. And we seek a unity of faith rather than a unanimity of thought and action. Most churches believe in the value of small groups, but a focus church, we are so convinced that's where the discipleship happens, that we put all of our resources, our training, and our assessment into the focus groups. And we believe that you can be part of a focus group from anywhere in the country. So if you'd like to join us, just email me at pastormac, M-A-C, underscore, at mac.com. And I'd love to tell you how you can be part of it. Either way, I hope this has been encouragement to you, and we'll see you here again next week.